please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I have the passage for you on the insert or in your bulletin, so please have whatever version you have there on your lap, open and ready to be looked at when I uh, direct you to the verses. Uh, We are in one of the great chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, In the early part of chapter 2, we learned of our state of spiritual deadness and the great salvation that is ours in Christ, all initiated by God, provided by God, secured by the work of the Son, and uh, through the agency of the Spirit, we're in Christ. Glorious, glorious verses building up in crescendo. In fact, it seems like the book of Ephesians just keeps escalating. When you think you've reached some kind of glorious pinnacle statement about salvation in Christ, uh, the text keeps coming to new heights. So verse 11 to verse 22 is our focus in a sweeping motion this morning. Then next week, we'll look at verses 19 through 22 with a, more, uh, with a closer microscope. So 11 through 22, so you get the full sense of the way the passage unfolds. You'll see Paul in his usual style is very logical in his flow with three very distinct points that he's making. But that last point deserves more focus, so we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week. Here we are, the middle of chapter 2, not addressing just individual salvation anymore. Now Paul turns his gaze towards the church, the new society, uh, the new creation of God, the new community, the household of faith, the spiritual family that you are part of, the church. And so the book will turn in a direction that speaks to us corporately as the people of God, this new household that God has crafted through the work of Christ, uniting those Jewish believers who are now believers in Christ with the new Gentile believers in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, seeks to show us that unity that is ours as the people of God. So here as I read, this is God's holy word, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, 
you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, please give us your Holy Spirit's aid to understand what we have read and how to apply it to our lives. Lord, there are so many ways to divide as people. There are so many differences between us. But Lord, we here gathered have something glorious in common. We are redeemed and regenerated sinners who have a blessed unity in Jesus Christ with each other. Please make us so aware of our essential unity in Christ that any other division that might threaten to disrupt us would be wiped away through our joint union with Christ in each other. Teach us by your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The church of Jesus Christ is God's new society. The church is God's new people. The church is God's single new humanity under the new Adam. You know, there really in actuality is only, there's only one division in humankind. Those who are under the first Adam and still dead in their sins, and those who are under the second Adam or in the second Adam, Christ, and are made alive together with him. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. This is the real division, both on earth, as far as God sees it, and for eternity. Now, despite the simplicity of this one division in mankind, we all know that people find all sorts of ways to divide. John Stott noted, divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ. We see all sorts of divisions among people, don't we? Ethnic divisions, racial divisions, national divisions, socioeconomic divisions, class divisions, political divisions, philosophical divisions. But what about the people of God? We're not supposed to be so divided. In Ephesus, there was a very basic division that Paul addresses in this passage. It's a specific division. The division was between Jew and Gentile. Those believers who were of Jewish descent, who had long grown up with the Bible, knowing of the messianic, messianic promise, seeing all the pictures of the, messi- the Messiah's coming sacrifice, they, they were steeped in understanding about God's revelation. But there were also those new believers, Gentile believers, who did not have that background. They were not aware of all the forecastings of Messiah. So this division was real, but yet now they're one in Christ in Paul's writing to break down the divisions that were happening in the church. Now, the specific division in this text has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles now as believers together. But think of any possible division that might come into the people of God. And this passage applies to that. It calls us to the unity that Christ has provided for us. And this should override any kind of disagreement we might have, any divisions that the world might thrust upon us. The church of Jesus Christ in this passage needed to start acting like the new unified spiritual family that they were in Christ. This is also a message that transcends the ages. It's for us too. Whatever the division may be, we have to understand something very plainly. Every person here has to get this. This passage is essentially about your most important association. This passage is about the most important association we have now on earth 
and will ever have in eternity. That's how important it is. And here's what we have to realize. Our most important association is not family or blood relations. Our most important association is not our ethnicity, our race, or our nationality. Our most important association is not our socioeconomic condition or our class, whatever that may be. Our most important association is not about where you grew up or where you went to school or whether you are a man or you are a woman or about what neighbor you, neighborhood you live in or about what your occupation happens to be or what hobbies you engage in or what politics you prescribe to. Your most important association on this earth and in the life to come is with other Christians. That's it. That's the most important association you have. In this room exists the most important association you have, symbolically and by extension. All other associations or categories or identities, while not insignificant, do not take precedence over your association with God's people through Christ. And I'm telling you that voices in the world will want to divide you, divide us, bring division. Voices in your own sinful flesh at times will gravitate towards antagonism and towards division and separation. But God's word calls for God's people to recognize who they are in Christ and how God wants us to act towards one another. Here before us, we have on display Christ creating a new human race characterized by reconciliation and unity. Under the second Adam, united to God because of the work of the, the second Adam, Jesus, we have a right relationship with God and now we can have an actual right relationship with other people. Reconciliation with God and with others and then a unity that we enjoy together now as a taste, clearly not in perfection, with an admixture of our problems that we bring in, but with a forecast and a foretaste of what is to come in total unity in the next world. Before we dig into these verses and take them slowly as we walk through them, I want you to recognize there are two main elements. There are other elements, no doubt, other, other uh, aspects to this topic. But very simply, two main elements for a church to be faithful in their witness for Christ. All of us would say, I hope, we want to be faithful witnesses for Christ as individuals and as a church. Well, there are two things that are absolutely necessary for that to happen, to be faithful witnesses. Number one, first and foremost, and it overrides any other, any other element, we must correctly understand the gospel and be able to communicate it. Very simply, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. We are sinners separated from God and deserve his judgment. But Jesus died for our sins, and anyone who believes on Christ, who rests on Christ, they're saved. They're his. That's the gospel. We have to be clear about this and clear to communicate it. But connected very closely, in a bit of an evidence as to whether we really believe what we say about the gospel, is the second point. We must practice love and unity in the body of Christ. We are a transformed people by the gospel. So our love and our unity toward each other it gives credibility to the watching world to say something supernatural has happened here because people can't conjure this. The Lord Jesus, right before he went to the cross, prayed for his disciples who were really scared at the moment, as you remember. He prayed that they would stay together, stay unified, close to one another. 
so that people would know that Jesus really was sent from God. Then when he's praying for his disciples in the first century, he prays for all those who would come to know Christ through their witness. That's us, us Gentile believers, as it were. And listen to what Christ prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See how it brings credibility to the message we preach. Further, Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So, brothers and sisters, if we have a concern for the world, and I think we probably do, especially sensitive to this these days, if we have a concern for this world that we live in, and especially for the people that we love that don't know Christ, we ought to be striving for gospel clarity and gospel unity in the body of Christ first. It starts here. Paul's purpose in this portion of Ephesians is to draw the people of God to a tighter unity. Christ has created a new humanity, a new human race, characterized by reconciliation and unity. Now, look at the passage with me, and you'll see it break down into three sections. First, we are reminded about who we were before we were called to God's new humanity or to God's church. Second, in the second section, we are reminded about what Christ did to bring us into this fellowship with his people. And finally, the last section, which I'll take a whole sermon on next week, we are reminded of who we now are as God's people, what our identity is as God's new humanity. First, verse 11, we'll see the condition that we were in before he called us to himself. Um, predominantly here, I'm going to assume we're Gentile believers. Probably only a few people in our church that I know of have Jewish descent. So we relate with this audience that Paul's talking to very directly. Verse 11, we remember who we were. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. This was a pejorative term used from the Jews talking about those who were not Jewish. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant with God, and if they were not circumcised, this is a sign of their defilement. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. It's an outward sign. Verse 12, again, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ. Remember where you came from. To appreciate your current state, thinking back and where you were is essential. I bet you lots of you can remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where you were and where you are now. And sometimes you can be down about where you are now, but, but pause and remember. Paul says, remember back. You know, my dad used to tell me this often when I was growing up. I remember comparing ourselves, our family, to other families, and I'd kind of lament and complain, moan and groan about so-and-so has more than we do. Look at their house. Look at their cars. Look at their clothes. And every once in a while, my dad could stand all I could stand, and he could stand no more. And he goes, Tony, do you know where we've come from? Do you know what your grandfather did? He came after World War I as a sulfur miner in Sicily to do what? To be a coal miner in Pennsylvania. Why did he do it? So that he, my dad, could have 
a, a leg up. He could earn, do something a little more than he, his, his father did. And then so I could then have a little more than he had. And looking at my situation, even as a child, it was so much better than what my grandfather's was. When I started to think and remember what I came from and realize how blessed I am now, I don't compare myself to other people. I just say, thank you, God, that you would give me so many blessings of this family, of the things you provided for us. All of these things are enhanced. Our present is enhanced when we remember what God has taken us from. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision, you were called defiled. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were separated from Christ. It means that they didn't even know who Messiah was. It doesn't mean that everyone in Israel knew Jesus personally. But they had the revelation of Christ. They had the Bible. They had a way to see how God promised salvation. The Gentiles, before they came to faith, didn't know they were Christless. They didn't have Jesus. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise is a way to describe the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis, after man falls, God promises to send a second Adam to undo the, the, the failure of the first. And then the whole of the Old Testament is covenant after covenant, fulfilling more of the promise to send Messiah. The covenants of promise is something that Jewish believers had always had, probably took for granted. Maybe some of us take for granted. We grew up knowing it. But the church at Ephesus had just come to Christ through the witness of Paul. And before they came to Christ, they didn't have any revelation about Jesus. This is what you came from. You could have been left there, is what Paul's essentially saying. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So very, very succinctly, before you came to Christ and were part of the church, Paul says to these Gentile believers, you were defiled. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from God's people. You were strangers to gospel promises. You were hopeless and you were godless. Defiled, separated, alienated, ignorant, hopeless, and godless. Do you see how important it is to remember from whence we have come? If you don't remember coming from these things, you could know this. Say you grew up in the church and you've always known a certain amount of favor because you've been in the church, heard the gospel clearly, praise God. We want that for all our children. But we do want our children to realize that what I've just described, if it were not for God doing this some point in your life, in your family's life, or whatever brought you here, this would be where you would be. We would all be in the state of defilement, separation, alienation, ignorance, hopelessness, and godlessness. So all of us can give praise to God and remember what he called us out of is his church. When we fail to remember our terrible estate before Christ, we risk thinking that we deserve what we have. This brings us to verse 13, and you'll notice it's familiar. We see what Christ has done for us. We were separated. Now we see how we're reconciled. Reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. But notice the familiar wording in verse 13. But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's familiar because just earlier in, ver- in chapter 2, we were, being, uh, we were being directed to our individual salvation. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then verse 4, what does it say? But God. You were dead, but God. 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now we come down to verse 13. He reminds us of what we were before we, the church knew Christ. You were separated from God. His promises, his people. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How were we reconciled to God and then to each other? A familiar theme. Look at verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. He's the one who makes peace by his sacrifice. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The blood of Christ is the peace offering with God, so God is not angry with us any longer. He accepts Christ's peace offering of himself, so we are at peace with God, and now, as a bunch of people, finally at peace with God, we're not all warring people with God, we can be relaxed with one another, let down our guards, and love one another as a family we are, at peace. He himself, Jesus, brought reconciliation for us with God by his cross, and he provides it for each other as well. Verse 14, who has made us both, the Jews and the Gentiles, has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What a great picture. When I was a kid, my sister and I were in a fight, um, Sometimes we had to sleep in the same bed when we were younger for whatever reason and we would put pillows between because we wanted to have nothing to do with one another. We'd build a wall between each other. Uh, Several years ago, I went on a bike ride with a bunch of guys from church and there's a guy in our church and Brian Huff who was a youth pastor. They had to share a bed. And so they built a wall between them to make sure that we all knew there was pillows between them. A dividing wall of separation between these guys. Now sometimes in a more serious note, People will describe a relationship with another person. They'll say, I feel like there's a wall between us. There's a dividing wall between us. Now, this is a very vivid metaphor we all can relate with by just what I've described. But there's something more at play here because Paul is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. And the marker of the Jews and the identifying feature for the Jews was twofold. Their temple and their law and their practices. Their temple was their sacred place of worship. It was assigned to everyone that God was with them and that God was present. Gentiles could go up to the temple, but they could not go far into it. There was a court that Gentiles could stay in, but they were not allowed to pass over a particular wall that ended the court of the Gentiles. In fact, there was a very clear sign that archaeologists have dug up and found that threatened any Gentiles to cross, if they crossed into the temple complex proper, they could be killed by execution. Talk about a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And think of how unusual it would have been after Jesus rose again and he commissions the apostles and there are Gentile believers now and Jewish believers. The apostles go out and do their ministry. We studied in the book of Acts. Yet the temple is still there. The temple of the Jews is still there and present. What does a Christian do at the temple? Because now the sacrifices are over. So Jewish Christians would be in the temple thinking in terms of how it's been fulfilled in Christ. But what about a Gentile who wants to go into the temple now that they know Messiah? So it would have been an awkward time of division early in the early church. So Paul writes 
to take this division away. And he says that Jesus, he gave himself as the peace offering. He's made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, verse 14, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How does he do this in particular? It says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity, is the literal, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does it mean, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? This has to do with Jesus' act of obedience to fully obey God's commands in every facet, and then dying on the cross, paying the price for them. Now, you'll note in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says what? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what could this mean? What this specifically means has to do with the identifying Jewish feature that was done away with by Christ's sacrifice. The ceremonial law of the sacrificial system and the dietary laws. These were two aspects of the whole law of God that distinguished the Jews from Gentiles. Jesus abolished that division. No more ceremonial law needed, no more sacrifices. No more special dietary law. We see in the early ministry of Peter how this is done away with. So there's no more reason for Jews to eat a certain way or worship a certain way and not the Gentile Christians. That's done away with now. Now we are one. We're brought together by the work of Christ to do this work of reconciliation. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus Christ creates one new man or one new humanity, a single new humanity. This means his unified church. Jesus created a new community now. A single, unified, new humanity, the church of Jesus Christ. People reconciled to God and now reconciled to each other in the church. And any petty difference or even bigger difference has to be put down in favor of our new unity in Christ. Straightforwardly, this will always be a problem for us. If it's not one thing, it'll be another thing. Just leave it to us. That's why I had us read that whole section out of the confession, which is such a great explanation of the church's description of the church on earth before heaven. It's an admixture. We are an admixture. I'm an admixture. But there's something amazing that happens when the Holy Spirit works, even in this admixture of purity and, and corruption, that God would still manifest himself through the body of Christ, giving us a love for one another that people can't understand unless they are in Christ. Verse 16, once again, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And this is the critical unfolding of God's redemption story in the Bible. Verse 17 refers to it. Look at what it says. And he came, Jesus came, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is not just a reference to Jesus' general ministry as the Prince of Peace in the Gospel of Peace. That's true. 
But I believe what he's speaking of here is specifically to his post-resurrection preaching to now open the way to the Gentiles as well in how he commissioned the apostles to preach this gospel to everyone. And this is what it means in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. Look at, or think back to what Jesus says when he rises again and he meets with his disciples after he's been resurrected. Listen to what it says in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, what did Jesus say? Peace be with you. He could say this because he had provided peace with God through his sacrifice and he's resurrected. We know God accepted it. Peace be with you. Peace can now start to be experienced on earth even. Verse 20 of John 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He had made payment for this peace he's talking of. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, back to our passage. Look at our passage in front of you in verse 17 of Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Verse 18, for through him, Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, people that are divided, we all now have access in one spirit to the Father. So whatever the division might be in our midst, we have unity in Christ's sacrifice, because of Christ's sacrifice. We have peace with God because of that sacrifice. We have this in common with one another. And we have access, because of the Holy Spirit, to the Father, our Father. You are the household of faith. This is your most important association right here. John Stott, who I refer to often without apology, said, The new society God has brought into being is nothing short of a new creation, a new human race, whose characteristic is no longer alienation, but reconciliation, no longer division and hostility, but unity and peace. Praise God for his rescue from separation and alienation. So ask yourself this question, am I in him? Am I in Christ? And if you say you're in Christ, you must Get along with each other. You must love one another. You will struggle with it. But because of the Spirit, you can experience this unity. And by so doing, God will show to the world that the Christ we preach has been sent from God and He is the Savior. Finally, we'll see in this passage, after first seeing who we were, then seeing what Christ has done for us, now we see who we are. And you'll see why I need a whole sermon for this next week. We are now a new humanity. Verse 19. So then, in the present, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is a message to the old saints who are having trouble welcoming the new ones, that they're just as equal as you are in Christ, because it's all Christ's merit. And it's a message to the new believers that you belong in the people of God too. You may not have the background, but you've got the Holy Spirit and you've got Jesus. And we are one body. That's what is being said here. One new humanity. You know, Paul loves metaphors and he mixes them all throughout this passage. Again, a reason why we want to unpack this a little further next week. 
The church is a unified people, the unified people of God. We are part of the household of faith. That's family term. We are citizens in God's kingdom. We are called members of the household of God. We are a spiritual family. All these metaphors. Verse 19 again. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How are we built? How are we strong? How do we know we're firm? Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What a vivid metaphor. In antiquity, when they would build buildings, stone buildings, and it's amazing that Jesus was a carpenter. Many people think of carpenter as a wood carpenter, more likely a stone carpenter. And so it's interesting that Paul would use this image of Jesus himself as the cornerstone. What do we have? We have us as parts of the building, God's building, the spiritual building. Stones, you're living stones. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What did the apostles and the prophets do? They brought us light about the gospel, the light, light about God's plan for salvation in Christ. That's the foundation. But the foundation that wraps around is only straight and it's only firm, it's only lined up right if the cornerstone is the sharpest of the stones. The cornerstone sets the pace for the foundation's build. And so Jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets form the foundation. And you and I as misshapen as stones as we may be, are built on that foundation, and we are God's building. This is this unified building. All shapes and sizes make up those stones on that foundation with the cornerstone Christ. And you know something else you see here? In verse 19, or verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, It moves to verse 21 with not just a building image, it gives us something even more vivid. Verse 21, look there. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, and notice this, a holy temple in the Lord. The first temple was still there. It had not been destroyed yet. It didn't get destroyed until 70 AD. But the temple that Jesus builds is far more glorious than that earthly temple. The new temple that declares to everyone that God is present is the church, and it's not a building. It's the people of God. And anywhere the people of God are, the church is, and the temple of God is there. That old temple was meant to show God is present with his people here in this high mountain in Jerusalem to Israel. The new temple is made up of all those united to Christ across the globe, and we, as the living temple, point to God. We point to salvation in Christ. And so now it's not limited to Jerusalem and Israel. It's the world over, wherever there are people who believe the true gospel. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple was meant to point people to God. The new temple is the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are the new temple. You are the means God uses to spread the word of the gospel. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 22. We are citizens of a new country. We are family members of a new spiritual household. We are stones in a new temple where Christ is the cornerstone. A new temple identifying God as the Lord and Jesus as the Savior. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to know, really know our true identity, as described here in this passage, it will motivate our actions 
towards love and unity with each other. Our petty differences will be seen as what they are, very petty indeed. The unity of the church is a central theme now moving forward in Ephesians. We'll see it. It's the theme of Jesus' prayer in John 17, so it shouldn't surprise us. It's the will of God for his church that we would know the gospel clearly and proclaim it and that we would love one another and be one and be unified as a transformed people, giving credibility to the message we proclaim. This passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it's a passage about your most important association. It's a passage about the most important association we have now and will ever have. Your most important association on this earth and in the life to come is with the people in this room with you and those people in the other service and across other churches who rest in Christ. This is our most important association. I want to close with words from James Montgomery Boyce. Commenting on this passage, Boyce said this, If you are in Christ, then in God's sight, you are one with every other believer, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, regardless of any distinction whatever. Therefore, you must act like it. You may not see eye to eye with every other Christian on everything. No one expects you to. But you must not break with them. And you must realize that regardless of your differences of opinion, the unity that you have with them is greater than the unity that you will ever have with anyone else in the world. Even if the unbeliever is of the same class, race, nationality, sex, or whatever as you are. Your duty is to live in harmony with these brothers and sisters in Christ and to let the world know that you are members of one spiritual family. That in itself should be a large portion of your witness. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, there are many opportunities to go the way of the world and be divided amongst ourselves. But you tell us this should not be so. Furthermore, you give us your spirit so that we might have genuine love for each other in the church. Fill each of us with a deep love for Christ and for each other. Lord, I pray what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed concerning his church. I pray that we may all be one so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent from God to be the Savior. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by singing a very fitting hymn. It's there printed in your bulletin. Let's stand and sing the church's one foundation, the verses that are there listed.